Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views, the place for pets and their people who love them. Aw, he's so sad. Come here, come here, boy. Here is your host, practicing veterinarian, veterinary news network reporter, and host of the popular YouTube show, The Web DVM, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. Welcome to the new season, the 2013-2014 season. I did take the summer off, spent some meaningful time with the family. I have two little children and a lovely wife that, uh, you know, school was off, and I really enjoyed having the, some free time to spend with them. We did some really cool stuff. Also, though, I took the time to delve into some projects that I'd like to just briefly elaborate on. Don't want to take too much time, but um, one of the big new different things that I'm doing is with regard to my YouTube channel. So just to briefly talk about the progression of my YouTube show. So my YouTube is, it started off as different, distinct from the Blog Talk Radio show. In fact, it predated it. And I wanted them to be mutually exclusive things offering different kinds of content. And that's how it originally started. So the YouTube show started off as like a news kind of commentary. So I would I would have a couple news stories and then I would have a per, what I called my personal comment where I would talk about a prevalent topic or maybe comment on one of the news stories. And then there was a blog talk radio show, which really hasn't changed much through the years where I'm just coming to you and shooting off the cuff and discussing experiences and covering topics and trying to take some live calls, emails and, and whatnot. And it's just a lot more, um, I guess I would say less structured so, um, but anyway, so I did what I didn't like about the news side of the YouTube show originally was that, well, after a while, the news show, you know, that news became old. And so there's some videos still on there where, you know, there's stories from like two, three years ago. One of them, you know, talking about the Gulf oil spill, the BP oil spill. You know, that stuff is, it's not really relevant anymore. And, and people still watch them, but. What I decided to do instead was just just give my YouTube subscribers a medium where they can, you know, clearly there's people that prefer to watch rather than listen. And so what I simply started doing was, and it also saved me time, was I just webcammed my blog talk radio shows. And essentially the content was the same. Well, as it turns out, sitting there and watching me at a microphone uh, is kind of like watching paint dry <laughs> is the feedback that I got from, um, you know, not just my producer, but but also some fans who said, "Yeah, you know, you should really go back to doing, you know, short con, you know, short short content laden videos that aren't necessarily news, but something that's different from what you're doing on Blog Talk Radio." So, I have uh, begun a doing a series of short videos, about two minutes in length. Uh, right now, I am working on a veterinary rehabilitation series, and again, very short investment of time, and. You know, if you're interested in, 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 in the stuff that I'm doing, then, you know, this could be something that uh, you may want to check out. And again, my YouTube URL is youtube.com front slash RWDVM, youtube.com front slash RWDVM. Separate and distinct from what I'm doing on Block Talk Radio. Right now, I've released four of those videos. There's six in total. And I'm going to try to do one a week. That's just going to be a short two-minute video that it, it, it's got um, – 
you know, it's not just me talking. It's it's got actual uh, footage, and um, you know, I'm doing the talk over. But anyway, I'll let you check that out, and um, that's something that uh, just again separate and distinct from undoing blog talk radio. The other thing is that I want to remind everyone that. I, my my actual blog is at a website called web-dvm.net, and I embed my YouTube stuff and my blog talk radio stuff there, but a lot of it is just articles that I write. And I'll tell you, I write a lot more than I do podcasts and a lot more than I do videos. All through the summer, I posted articles, for example, two to three a week, because you know I, what I'm reporting to you on, in large part, in large measure, comes from... My experiences day in and day out, things that people may say, things that I find, wow, you know, there's not enough awareness about this certain thing out there and there's so much misconception. I'll just feel the need to get it out there immediately. Otherwise, I won't sleep at night. So just keep in mind, I write a lot more than I podcast and a lot more than I post videos on my YouTube. And so, you know, you may want to subscribe to that and and you might catch something in those articles that I'm not necessarily talking about here. web dvm .net. That's how it's typed in your browser. All right, so enough of that. Let's get on to our content here today. We're talking about everything you need to know about joint shoes and dogs and cats. Folks, stay tuned in because, again, this is a big misinformation thing, and I want you to know everything you need to know about joint shoes and dogs and cats. I'm going to break it down for you here tonight. We do have two email questions, and the first one was actually sent in while we were on our recess uh, from Christina from Connecticut, and I want to... Uh, delve right into this, and then we'll do our second one a little bit later in the show. Dear Dr. Welton, my name is Christina, and I live in Connecticut. My cat and little love of my life, Bean, was diagnosed with diabetes in May 2012, over a year ago. A little info, she's a domestic short-haired tabby, seven years old, spayed indoor female. I adopted her as an adult from a shelter five years ago. Her blood glucose was 389 when she was originally diagnosed. All other blood work was normal, including the T4 which was at 1.8. After her diagnosis, we learned to home test and eventually within the last two months got her into normal ranges and off insulin with a proper wet food only diet. Her blood sugar stays around 140 to 150. In November of 2012, Bean had a scary episode where she had urine in her abdomen. The doctors never really figured out, but they said her bladder wall was thin because of the diabetes and a urinary blockage must have taken place, though they never found one. She fully recovered. Then in April of this year, I noticed her pupils were uneven and she didn't dilate properly. The vet diagnosed her with iris atrophy and checking her blood pressure, which was good. Now, Well, now it is August and we have been monitoring Bean's weight since the Euro abdomen episode and it has fluctuated. Recently, she began eating more and seeking cool places to lay. She's also been hyperactive. Through my work in shelters, I knew it sounded like hyperthyroid and sure enough, her T4 is 8.8. T4 is active thyroid um, hormone, which um, should be no higher than four in a cat. So 8.8 is very high, just telling everybody. Cut in there real quick. My question is, do you think the wet food with 50% fish diet caused the hyperthyroid? Can we fix this with the diet? I've heard bad things about both methimazole and the iodine-131 treatment, and I will do whatever is best for her. Do you have any recommendations? And lastly, do you think all of her issues may be connected? Thank you for your help in your podcast. It is very insightful and good to have on a walk. Um, so early on, I, I didn't want Christina to wait until you know the broadcast because it was a few weeks ago. So I did kind of answer her. And I do see there's a caller on the queue, and this actually might be her. And thank you for waiting, Christina, if that's you. And we'll get to you in a moment. But let, let me just comment on this real quick. So 
A blood glucose of 389 actually isn't too bad in a feline. In fact, I'm not recommending insulin until you know the blood work, the blood glucose exceeds 350 because anything you know typically 350 in the high 300s you're going to be able to manage with diet which clearly happened here and I'm very glad to hear it all what I'd like to do with diabetic cats is to put them on an ultra low carb diet high protein ultra low carb great diet for that is dm diet um, I really don't see a difference in canned versus dry to me it doesn't matter I'd actually prefer my kitties to be on a dry diet because of the dental health benefits. Diabetics tend to have rotten teeth. And uh, so I'd rather have have them on a dry. It's really about the nutrient breakdown versus the texture uh, from my point of view. So I'd rather have the patient on a dry diet and as long as it's ultra low carb. And ideally, I would suggest going with the Hills MD, which is going to fit that bill. But but for some reason, uh, Purina, which I'm not a giant fan of Purina from a general standpoint, but the prescription diet DM uh, tends to be really, really good. And so it seems like that part of things is under control. Now, the first question, did the 50% fish diet cause the hyperthyroidism? The answer is no, it did not. Um, we know fish fish tends to be high in iodine, and of course, thyroid hormone is is synthesized in large part by utilizing iodine, iodine has a big affinity for the thyroid gland, but it's not going to cause hyperthyroid disease. Hyperthyroid disease is overactive thyroid that happens as a result of a benign tumor that grows on the on the on the thyroid gland. And the the tumor is benign, meaning not cancerous, but it is functional. So it basically, just creates more thyroid, and they become hyperthyroid. The way the medication methimazole works is that it actually destroys thyroid tissue. But it doesn't do it in such a profound manner that, you know, we're going to really worry too much about side effects. And if you drop it down too low, you can always cut back on that methimazole dose. And, you know, Christina may have heard bad things about the methimazole, but, you know, generally speaking, it's it's a pretty safe medication. Now, the iodine-131 treatment basically carries, you know, as I said, iodine has an affinity for the thyroid. So the iodine actually carries the uh, a radioactive isotope to the thyroid and then destroys the abnormal tissue. It's actually a great treatment. It is the gold standard of treatment as far as being curative and getting a definitive result. In most cases, that hyperthyroid disease is not going to come back. It's definitive. It's over. It takes one week. It's actually fairly safe, believe it or not. The kitty's just hospitalized for a week so we can collect their excrement, their urine, and their feces to discard it safely uh their 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 ex- excrement is going to be radioactive and we actually call them hot cats um but the long term harm to the patient from the radioactivity is minimal so it's actually quite safe now with a borderline diabetic though i don't think i'm wanting to go there because of the fact that we know diabetics can be tough on their kidneys and in some cases these hyperthyroid cats once you back down their thyroid and get it normal with methimazole it can actually unmask underlying kidney disease, in which case you have to cut back on the methimazole. And to lessen the impact of the kidney disease, sometimes you have to keep them somewhat hyperthyroid, maybe not 8.8, but say like 4 or 5, so that the kidney disease doesn't become further unmasked. So I would rather keep this kitty on methimazole than go iodine-131. So I had the leeway to change that thyroid status as needed. So 
Um, as far as connected, I don't believe there's any connection between the hyperthyroid disease and the diabetes. Um, diabetes in cats, 95% of the time is type 2, meaning that it was probably a buxom physique that got her there. Um, and that's probably why she's been able to come out of it on a high-protein, low-carb diet is because type 2s can go into a remission because it's not insulin dependent until things get really out of hand. So that's stated. I am going to go ahead and uh, check the queue here and see if Christina is on the line. Is this Christina? That's me. Hello, Hello. there. Thank you for calling in. I hope um, I addressed all your concerns there. You got anything yeah, that was actually my number one question. My number one question was actually um, the kidney issue, which I had heard about, uh -huh. and she's actually yep. had a couple urinary um, infections in the past, and with uh -huh. the uroabdomen uh -huh. episode, I was worried about that happening. Um, so it's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> very valid concern. Now, uroabdomen is very strange. I, 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 you know, I would, I, you know, it sounds like you got some good bets there, okay? And I'm not, I, I don't yeah. want to hurt your confidence in your veterinarians, but. Mm -hmm. You know, uroabdomen is not typically something you're going to see without a major tear in the bladder. Um, okay. You know, I just I don't see how that's going to happen and then suddenly go away. Right. You know, I'm wondering if it's right. of other kind. So, what I would suggest, if they have the capability, is to have an ultrasound done of that bladder to see if they can find any mm -hmm. any sort of um, weaknesses in the bladder wall. Sometimes what you'll see is. Did do that. Oh, you and did do that. They didn't okay. find anything. No, yeah, and they just did okay. the, the dye in her. They said. Yep. Uh, okay. If, Good. Um, yeah, and they said that there was nothing, so they just came up and didn't figure anything out. <laughs> yeah. The other thing too is the most common reason we're going to see tears is because of an obstruction, and then that bladder really descends and tears. Well, God, I've only seen in two blocked female cats in my entire career, and I've treated hundreds. <laughs> hundreds of blocked mm -hmm. cats. They're always males because they got that long, twisty, turny urethra that loves to get right. obstructed. Cat females have, you know, female cats have a short, wide urethra. So, I don't know. It's, I, I'm just wondering. I would say if this ever happens again, send that mm -hmm. fluid off for analysis. Did they send okay. it off? Or did they do their own in-house cy like cytology? Do you know? Um, I think it was all in-house. It's kind of a blur yeah. what happened. Okay. But, sure. Yeah. If it happens again, I would do two things. I'd have a fluid analysis I'd have a cytology done, so an actual pathologist does a smear and, and you know, kind of looks at the cellular makeup. And thirdly, I would okay. culture it to see if, you know, maybe it was a peritonitis, uh, you okay. know, some, something of that nature. But um, luckily, that's put to bed. So as far as anything else about her case, you got anything further you'd like to ask me? Um, Not really. I mean, we've had her on, um, like you were talking about, the wet food, and that's really helped her a lot. And I know that you're not a um, proponent of the grain-free diet, which has seemed to help her, too, just going grain-free and just straight-up meat uh -huh. product, pretty much. Um, sure. So, I mean, we're really happy with the sugar. It's just we want to do what's yeah. right for her. So I guess it's continuing on with the methamidol from what you said. Sure. Now, I, I, it's not that I'm not a proponent of grain-free. I think there are defi <laughs> there are definitely cases where patients will benefit. And I will always state this, you cannot argue with success. And if she does better right. on it, then she does better on it. End of story. And plus grains are carbohydrate laden. So I think grains right. for a kitty that's diabetic, you don't want to go there anyway. So I think in this particular right. case, going grain free, number one, because she's diabetic, but number two, because she just does better. You can't argue with mm -hmm. success. So I would say that don't fix what's not broken. Totally. Um, just one more question. I'm not sure. Um, 
how you feel about this, but we changed we changed her wet food a lot just to keep her interested. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the foods we were feeding, like the third ingredient is um, liver, chicken liver. And I was wondering yeah. if feeding her too much liver could be a problem, like vitamin K levels or anything. No, I don't believe so. In fact, liver is a pretty darn good nutrient source. It's a great protein okay. source. It's high biological value protein, so it's very okay. well metabolized, and, and very the, the protein they derive from it is very well utilized in their tissue. So I would say, no, you're, you're good there. All right. Awesome. Right. <laughs> well, thank you okay. so much. Well, call us anytime right. uh, or shoot me an email if you have anything further. Sounds like you're on the right track. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much for your contribution. Okay. Take care now. Take care. All right, everybody, that was Christina. And just remember, this is a call-in show, and you're welcome to give us a call anytime. It's really uh, cool when people call in, give us something to talk about, and hear someone's voice other than mine. Um, so let's get into our topic here. Uh, so we're talking about joint chews, and I'm going to break this down you know, pretty quickly here because um, we're getting a little short on time. But uh, the bottom line is that joint chews are quite popular, and the question is, do they work? Uh, the, the answer to that is maybe. You know, and maybe <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, like most things that I discuss, this isn't there's it's not a cut and dry answer, and I'm going to break it down for you and tell you what is good about joint shoes and what you should look for, and how they can be not helpful and how they can be very helpful for my estimation. So I think the the first thing is let's break down the different types of stuff that's out there in joint shoes. There is glucosamine, there is chondroitin, there is MSM, and there is omega-3 fatty acids. Those are our four most common things. And I think before we move on, I'm going to tell you how each of those things works. But number one is each of these has, they, they all work differently. And so because they all work differently and because the data on each one individually, with the exception of omega-3 fatty acids, each one individually is inconclusive in terms of really proving that it works beyond anecdotal owner observation or case-by-case observation by individual doctors, you know, you want a product with all four of those in there. And so I'm going to repeat that. Glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, and omega-3 fatty acid. You want to sacrifice any one of the four. So basically, let's talk about glucosamine first because that's the the most well-known. Glucosamine is the precursor to a type of molecule called glycosaminoglycan. And glycosaminoglycan is really the matrix or the individual building block that really forms all of the connective tissues of the body. So ligaments, cartilage, um, fascia. So fascia is the connective tissue that covers the uh, muscles, tendons. Just name your your fibrous connective tissue its individual building blocks are glycosaminoglycan. So in theory, when we give glucosamine, we're increasing the amount of glycosaminoglycan, thereby, in theory, increasing or strengthening the integrity of the connective tissues of the body. And so when we're looking at giving glucosamine, we're looking to increase glycosaminoglycan, therefore help to rebuild and repair tissues. Again, I say in theory because there's a, lot, there's a little bit more to it than just that. So let's next talk about chondroitin. Chondroitin is a major component to a specific connective tissue known as cartilage. And cartilage is what lines all of the major joints of the body. So you have bone-on-bone contact without cartilage, that's not good. Cartilage is very important. It's what smooths the articulation of the bones. 
So you have a nice, smooth gliding across joints. Cartilage gets damaged and is a primary issue when you have degenerative or chronic joint disease. So when we give chondroitin, in theory, we're increasing the body's potential to rebuild and repair its own cartilaginous surfaces and cartilaginous structures. Keep in mind the discs of the spine also are made of cartilage. So, again, more to that story, and I keep saying in theory because there's more to the story. The third thing is MSM. It's methyl sulfoxyl methane. Let me just make sure I said that right. Methyl sulfoxyl methane. And basically what that is, it's a wonderful source of sulfur. So in order for glucosamine and chondroitin to be active molecules, meaning able to be integrated into tissues, they have to be sulfated. So glucosamine sulfate is the active form of glucosamine. Chondroitin sulfate is the active form of chondroitin. And so they have so when we're looking at glucosamine and chondroitin, we know that they have to be sulfated properly before we are able to get them integrated properly into tissues. So uh let's see, I'm double checking that. Yeah, methyl sulfonyl methane. So MSM. So basically when we're giving MSM, MSM by itself, you know, probably isn't going to do a whole lot unless you're throwing some glucosamine and chondroitin in there. So MSM alone based products are, you know, maybe essentially useless. <laughs> so just remember that. So let's look at our fourth component, omega-3 fatty acid. Now, of the four things, this is the one thing that has conclusive data behind it that when used by itself, used by itself, has very profound data that supports a major uh, quantifiable relief uh, with uh, joint pain, joint disease, arthritis, degenerative joint disease, etc., um, omega-3 fatty acid works by being naturally anti-inflammatory. So whenever there's inflammation, there's a biochemical cascade, a pathway that led to the final inflammatory products. What omega-3 fatty acids do is they provide an alternate pathway. They basically provide a detour of those biochemical inflammatory pathways that end in inert non-inflammatory end products. So basically, they're naturally anti-inflammatory. They're also a component to joint fluid. So when we give omega-3 fatty acid, we're increasing joint fluid production. Joint fluid is, you know, you can think of it as the lubrication of the joint. So think about, you know, any mechanical device, it's going to work better if lubed better. All right. So those are the four things that should be in all good quality joint shoes that, you know, if you're not doing all four, you're selling the patient, patient short a little bit and you can do better. So that's one thing. Um, the next thing is that these things are not FDA regulated. So, you know, not being FDA regulated means that there's no oversight of these products, which means they can put whatever in them. And when I say they, I'm talking about any, every Tom, Dick, and Harry company out there can put whatever they want in these products and, um, you know, stick a label on it and say, you know, magical joint shoes and really – no one's going to check up and see if anything's really there, except DVM News Magazine, a few years ago, did a blind study. They randomly selected four, uh, you know, a bunch of different products, and they found that three out of four, this is pretty sad, three out of four joint health products, pet joint health products out there on the market, 
did not have the ingredients that were that that were claimed on the label. That is a little frightening, folks, and that's why I want you to be careful. Don't just buy every to- any Tom, Dick, and Harry supplement out there. Number one, you want all four of the products I talked about, glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, and omega-3 fatty acid, number one. Um, number two, you want a veterinary-grade product. So you want a, a, a product that's going to be recommended by your veterinarian because he trusts that company. The company that is going that we're going to trust are companies that have a very trustworthy name that submit themselves to random scrutiny by organizations like the AVMA. And these are companies that also have real pharmaceutical stuff out there that, you know, is actual drug therapy that they have a name to protect. So if they're caught not putting the items in the product that they claim to put in, they're in big trouble. They're going to lose a lot of money for a lot of reasons. Because you peeve off veterinarians because you're lying about a product, boy, we're not going to want to use your other stuff that's out there, even if even if it's good products and has a good history. We don't like being lied to. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be a promoter for any particular joint chew, but uh, ask your veterinarian. That's your best source. Um, and, and not all joint chews are created equal. And just remember that. That's very, very important. That goes for both dogs and cats. Uh, for In my own practice, I... I actually have my own brand. Uh, Maybach Animal Hospital is the name of my, my clinic, and my, my own brand is um, Maybach Animal Hospital brand joint shoes. I actually have a pharmaceutical that makes them for me. I know what works. I know what's maximally absorbable. Um, I want them flavored a certain way so that they're palatable. And so uh, my associate, Dr. Fogelberg, and I, uh, you know, we decided what went in our joint shoes. We decided how uh, they're going, we're going to get to that final product. We decided how... They're going to taste, and uh, in the end, I don't have some pharmaceutical telling me that, okay, this is why our joint shoes are better than the others. No, I chose what goes into my joint shoes, and I, I, you know, I've had wonderful clinical results and have my own dogs on them. Now, they're not marketed to the public right now. Eventually, I may be marketing those to the public at some point. That, that point hasn't come yet. I will let you know when I do. Love my joint shoes, but, um, you know, there's other ones out there that are really good, and, and just talk to your veterinarian about that. You want pharmaceutical-grade, veterinary-grade products. And that's really all you need to know about joint shoes. <laughs> uh, let's go to our last email question. we got about three minutes here, so we got to kind of boogie on this one. Dear Dr. Roger, my veterinarian uses three year, the three-year rabies vaccine on my five-year-old German Shepherd, but he does it once every two years. When I asked him why, he stated something about state veterinary politics mandating it, even though I looked into it, New York state law recognizes the three-year rabies vaccine. If it is a matter of politics, is there any reason my dog should be getting a three-year vaccine once every two years? I was not aware that the veterinary profession has political issues. Thank you so much for what you do. Patricia Smithtown, New York. Oh my goodness. You were not aware that there's politics in veterinary medicine? Oh boy. Okay. Well, there's, there's more politics than you'll ever know. Uh, it's 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 a sad commentary when politics are driving the kind of medicine you practice. I will say that I see you're in Smithtown, New York, which is not far from Huntington, New York, where I started my first three years of practice. And I recall a lot of clinics in the area were doing the three-year rabies every two years because there was something about the state board having some some some, some issues or 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 questions about the true 
length of protection offered by the three-year vaccine, because I guess it was it was still fairly new at the time. Well, let me tell you something. That the th- labeled three-year vaccines not only have three-year protection, but they 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 probably offer protection beyond that. Now, most uh, every state modality I know of, or every state uh, not modality, but every state uh, municipality that I'm aware of is is not going to mandate anything beyond what it's labeled for. So if it's labeled for three years, we're still going to want to do it every three years, especially for something as serious and dangerous as rabies. But make no mistake, you do not need to give that every two years. That is over-vaccinating. And if you're doing it for politics, you know, that's a little disappointing. I um, I, I, I don't think anything should be politically motivated. I think I don't think you should practice scared. I don't think you should practice in a manner that is reflective of what your peers may think about you. Um, and certainly in New York, I was even back then, we're talking back in 2004, I left New York. Um, I was doing the three-year vaccine every three years. I, I find that ridiculous doing it every two years. So that's my opinion, and I'm glad you emailed about that one. That is my show for this evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am really happy to be back talking to you, although I enjoy all three modes that I come to uh, communicate with my various fan base, my videos, my podcast, and my writing. I so much enjoy uh, the, the podcast, and and the, the the following is growing every day, and, and it's just so 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 humbling. Uh, the amount of people out there that are just so hungry for information, and I'm happy to give it to you. And thank you so much for continuing to listen to my show. And uh, next week we're going to be talking about what's in a name, tips for naming your pet. Believe it or not, very important. This is another you know thing that that came to me in the midst of uh, having a discussion with a client that I looked into a bit further. And naming that is a lot more than sticking him with a tag that he or she is going to have to live with. It's also functional. We're going to be talking about that next week, so be sure to tune in. Have a great night, everybody. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the Internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.